Welcome to episode six of Gasps in Spanish. I'm Sarah May, and today we're going to be talking about the tragic murder of Dominique Ellen Dunn. This is a case that I've been wanting to do for a while. I was inspired to do it actually by another podcast that I am a huge fan of called Trashy Divorces. They have a segment uh, where they talk about Dominique's father, Dominic Dunn. Uh, who was a very prominent writer. And this case, obviously, because it was his daughter, uh, shaped his and his family's lives. And so let's just dive right in. Uh, Dominique was born to Dominic and Lenny Dunn. Uh, She was their third daughter, technically. Two daughters had preceded Dominique, but both tragically died in infancy. Uh, So Dominique was all three daughters in one to the family. She was triply loved, as Dominic would say. Um, She had older brothers who adored her, and she was always at ease in a sophisticated world without being particularly sophisticated herself. A lot of the info that I got for this case was from a Vanity Fair article that Dominic Dunn wrote uh, in regard, you know, specifically about the case Dominique was described as a collector of stray animals. She attended Westlake in LA, Taft School in Connecticut, and then uh, went to Fountain Valley School in Colorado. So as you can kind of tell, like by her studies and schooling, her family was very well off. One might even say that uh, they were kind of Hollywood royalty. Her mother, Lenny Ellen Beatrice, was a ranching heiress. And uh, Dominic Dunn, like I said, was an acclaimed author. Um, He was also a film producer. And they were really wrapped up in the Hollywood scene. They were in with the base names in the business, Judy Garland. uh, I can't remember. Oh, Elizabeth Taylor. And just all the badasses of the day. Like, honestly, they were in with it. Um, Dominic goes on to say that she spent a year in Florence where she learned to speak Italian. And... Um, When she announced that she was going to be an actress, her father was not really surprised. Her older brother, Griffin, uh, was an actor and a producer. Like I said, they were kind of all in with this Hollywood scene. And they joked that within the week that she decided to become an actress, she was on backlots making movies. And there was no stopping her. She just loved acting. She was very passionate about her career. Uh, The relationship she had with her father was described as perfect. Um, I love you, daddy, were some of the last words that she said to him. Lenny and Dominic did divorce. um, And he spent, Dominic spent a bit of time after that divorce, kind of falling down the rabbit hole with drugs and alcohol. The last movie he produced was called Ash Wednesday in 1973. And that was right after he divorced Lenny in 1965. And then, you know, due to his addictions, his relationships got really awkward with his kids. But after he got himself some help, he repaired those relationships and he really made an effort to be sober and to kind of be the example when it came to addiction for his children. So I have a lot of respect for Dominic Dunn as a writer and as a person. Let's fast forward to 1982. Dominique had just successfully wrapped her first film, Poltergeist. 
Uh, it was at this time in L.A. when she met a man named John Sweeney, who was a head chef at a French restaurant called Ma Maison in West Hollywood. Their relationship progressed relatively quickly. Uh, you know, they moved in together after dating for a few months, and Dominique brought Sweeney to meet her family in New York, where Dominic and her brothers were living at the time. Her mom was with her in L.A., they, you know, did the typical meet the family type of things. They watched TV and went to dinner. And uh, so, you know, her brothers, as they do, were teasing her about marriage. And uh, there was a moment when they were all kind of alone together where they were talking about it. And Dominique was very adamant about not getting married. Snap, snaps. Uh, her father could tell she meant it. And he was a little bit relieved because though he could tell Sweeney was obviously devoted to her. There was something off-putting about him. He seemed to be ill at ease and difficult to talk to. He, uh, ha Dominic had a conversation with Lenny later that evening where he told her uh, he's much more in love with her than she is with him, and Lenny absolutely agreed. So the next day, Dominic, Sweeney, and Dominique are out on the town. They have dinner together. Dominic excuses himself, and Dominique and Sweeney are hanging out, just having a good time, when a fan recognizes her from the Poltergeist film in the restaurant. Now, Sweeney excused himself to go use the restroom, and I guess this fan called out to her uh, a line from the trailer. If you watch the 1982 trailer of Poltergeist, which is on YouTube, there's a moment at the end of it where she yells out the line, what's happening? I, I can't do it as well as she does. She's amazing. But it's a really well-known moment. And it was not flirtatious or anything weird. But Sweeney, when he came out of the restroom and saw these two talking, got pissed. He became so enraged, in fact, that he picked up this man and physically shook him. That strikes me as extreme as an extremely intense reaction. And that was how Dominic felt about it too when he heard about it later from a friend who'd been at the restaurant. So that was the first incident uh, that raised his eyebrows. And then as time goes on, you know, Dominique continues to work. Her career is going really well. Dominic is hearing good things from his contacts in Hollywood about her. She's making a pilot for the little-known miniseries V, and she's really excited about it. Dominic is, uh, you know, in touch with her, talking about her work, and she mentions to him in a phone conversation that she and Sweeney actually broke up and that they're no longer living together. And she says something here that really strikes him. And I quote, he's not in love with me, dad. He's obsessed with me. He's driving me crazy. On October 31st, 1982, uh, Dominic received a call from a detective, Harold Johnston of the LA Homicide Bureau, who informed him that 22-year-old Dominique was near death at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Dominic's first question was, 
has Lenny been notified? Has somebody let my wife know what's going on? The detective informed him that he was in fact calling from his wife's house. No caller ID back in the day. And then Lenny got on the phone and said, I need you. You know, Dominic's response was what happened. And all she says is Sweeney. By the time Dominic and the boys arrived in L.A. on Sunday, the report that Dominique had been attacked by her boyfriend Sweeney was all over the news. The television stations were saying that he had that she had been strangled and was in a coma. I can imagine finding out that information about your baby girl from the news station. And when they got to Lenny's house in L.A., there were a lot of people there, a lot of Dominique's friends, um, some of their family. Dominic and the boys were told that the news was not good. They couldn't go to the hospital right away to see her because she was having a procedure. Um, and Dominic got on the phone with the doctor because he needed permission to drill a bolt into Dominique's skull to relieve pressure on her brain. The word brain damage was being whispered about in the house. When they were able to go and see her after the procedure had been done and she was stable, they didn't recognize her. There were tubes everywhere. She was on a life support system that was breathing for her. It was, I'm sure you guys have seen like on Grey's Anatomy or when somebody's hooked up to those machines, there's like a grotesque jerking movements and clicking and beeping. Her eyes were wide open, massively enlarged, staring. Her long, dark hair had all been shaved off, and there was a large bolt screwed into her skull to relieve pressure on her brain. Her neck was purple and swollen. Hand marks were clearly visible of the man who had strangled her. She spent a few days in this condition, but there was a little bit of back and forth because if they took her off life support, it would change to a murder charge in the courts. Uh, but on the fourth day, the family decided to have what organs, you know, her organs donated, and they said their goodbyes. On November 4th, Dominique's autopsy was performed. On November 5th, Sweeney was arranged for her murder. And in, the, and in the days that followed, Dominique's friends came forward to talk to Dominic and Lenny about what had happened within the last few weeks of her life. They talked about how afraid of Sweeney they had been. They talked about a previous incident where he had assaulted her and choked her, but she had managed to escape. Rumors started coming about that John Sweeney had beaten another woman about a year or so ago. Her funeral was held on November 6th, and the church was filled to capacity, not with curiosity seekers or busybodies, but with people who knew and loved Dominique. That night, her parents watched her in an episode of Hill Street Blues, where she had played about her child. During the trial, Lenny and Dominic 
came to realize that the marks that had been on her neck during that episode were real. The family was offered a plea bargain. The attorney said that Sweeney was full of remorse and willing to go to prison. He would plead guilty to a reduced charge of manslaughter and would be and would serve seven and a half years. No fucking way. Of course, this was turned down. And Dominic Dunn said he despised the thought of Sweeney being remorseful and quote unquote willing to serve seven and a half years. So moving forward, uh, the preliminary hearings take place and Sweeney's defense attorney calls a lot of Dominique's friends and neighbors to the stand. They were asked if fights between the former lovers were commonplace and a lot of them were interrogated about how often Dominique went out. How drunk was she was a phrase that was asked again and again and again. Obviously, the intent was to give the impression that this young actress was an out-on-the-town drunkard. Um, This is a common tactic that's used in criminal defense cases today. The victim is usually the one put on trial. It's unfortunate, but it's effective, especially for 1982. I can only imagine. Presiding over the case was Judge Burton Katz. Sweeney uh, came to court every day clutching a Bible, if you can believe that. He was dressed in all black, looking like a sacristan. The Bible was an obvious prop. Sweeney never fucking read it. And he wept constantly. So uh, there was a moment that Dominic Dunn refers to in his Vanity Fair article where Sweeney actually puts the whole court on recess recess because he cannot contain his sobs. And I'm all for men feeling their feelings. But I thought Dominique was the actress in this relationship. So one of the witnesses called to the stand during the preliminary hearings was a woman named Lillian Pierce. She was a former girlfriend of Sweeney's and they had dated right before he got into a relationship with Dominique. It came out later that she had actually sat in the car car outside Dominique's funeral and cried. She felt too ashamed and guilty to actually go inside. I couldn't imagine being in a relationship with this man for a year, surviving and actually knowing what he's capable of and then witnessing the person after you not get out of the relationship the way you did. When Lillian took the stand, she was obviously very nervous and kept glancing at Sweeney, who refused to look at her. She said that on 10 separate occasions during their, excuse me, two-year relationship, bad bitch, he had beaten her. She had been hospitalized twice, once for six days, once for four. He had broken her nose, punctured her eardrum, collapsed her lung thrown rocks at her. She said that she had seen him actually foam at the mouth when he lost control and that he often smashed pictures and furniture. 
Of course, the the defense attorney countered with, were you not drunk? Were you not drugged? The The implication being that she had got what she deserved. And I'm taking that into the context that, you know, the question that's posed to most survivors of any kind of abuse, why didn't you leave? Did he, was, were you chained to the couch? Like, why didn't, when the reality is it's so much more complicated than that. I guess uh, the, attor- the defense attorney continued his attack, trying several times to veer her off her story, but she was steadfast. At one point during this testimony, Sweeney became so enraged that his prop Bible actually went flying because he had jumped out of his seat and took off for the exit. The bailiff had to grab him around the chest from behind and an additional four armed guards had to wrestle him to the fucking floor. They then had to handcuff him to his chair. Sweeney, of course, cried and apologized. Uh, The judge, Mr. Katz, accepted his apology and said, we know what a strain you're under. Like Miss Lillian on the stand, who was perfectly composed during her rendition of the ordeals that she, by the grace of the higher power, miraculously survived. (sighs) Anyway. The double standard here is just killing me. But um, so Lenny was actually the one to take the stand next. And I want to remind you listeners that these are preliminary hearings. So this is information that the judge is listening to and deciding whether he's going to put this into the trial. That He's actually going to allow the jury to hear this testimony. Um, So Lenny was next to take the stand. And she described an incident when Dominique came to her house at night after being beaten by Sweeney. He had knocked her head on the floor and pulled out actual clumps of her hair. The defense attorney then asked Lenny if she knew what they had been fighting about. Lenny said she didn't. He then asked if she knew that Dominique had had an abortion. She didn't. It turns out nobody did. And it remained throughout the rest of the trial an abstantiated charge that to the defense seemed to justify the beating. Dominic goes on to say that in that moment, Lenny looked like she had been slapped. Of course, going forward, Mr. Marvelous Judge Katz ruled that the testimony of Lillian Pierce could not be used to show the jury that John Sweeney had committed previous acts of violence against women. The jury would never know of Lillian Pierce's existence until after they'd already arrived at a verdict. He also refused to allow Lenny's testimony. He stated that the prejudicial effect of the testimony outweighed its probative value. He mandated that all statements made by Dominique to her agent, fellow actors, and friends regarding her fear of Sweeney must be considered hearsay 
and were ruled inadmissible. The Dunn family was being supported by a few really amazing organizations who were getting their start um, in the late 70s, early 80s. They worked with parents of murdered children uh, who advised them to attend every session. They told them it's the last business of your daughter's life. So they made a point to be at every hearing, front row, Lenny in her wheelchair, not giving a fuck to what people thought because she was actually suffering from MS. Dominique's friends came daily. Also, they were supported by representatives from Women Against Violence Against Women and the Victims for Victims organizations. The last group was actually started by actress Teresa Saldana, who was brutally stabbed by her partner in the late 70s. She survived the incident. The opening to the trial was not auspicious. The loss of Lillian Pierce's testimony was a huge blow to the prosecutor. But the attorney's opening arguments buoyed everybody's hopes. He began with a description of the participants, Sweeney, 27, 6 foot 1, 170 pounds. Dominique, 22, 5 foot 1, 112 pounds. He gave a rundown of the charges in the two incidents, the assault on Dominique on September 26th and the murder on the night of October 30th. He described how Sweeney had walked out of his restaurant at 8.30 that evening and then proceeded on foot to the house where he argued with Dominique and strangled her. He said that Dominique was brain dead there at the scene of the strangulation, despite the fact that she was kept on life support until November 4th. He went on to say that the coroner would testify that death by strangulation took between four and six minutes. Then he held up a watch with a second hand and said to the jury, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to show you how long it took for Dominique Dunn to die. For a whole four minutes, the courtroom sat in silence. Dominic Dunn said he had never allowed himself to think about how long she had struggled in his hands thrashing for her life and that a gunshot or a knife stab would have been over in an instant. But strangulation is an eternity. The only sound during those whole four minutes came from John Sweeney and his attorney, who whispered together the whole time. Two of Dominique's friends, Brian Cook and Denise Denny, hope I'm saying that right, apologize, uh, testified that Dominique had escaped from her house the first time Sweeney tried to choke her by climbing out of a bathroom window. Um, when she got to her friend's house after the escape, they were appalled by the marks on her neck and were smart enough to take photos. Deputy Frank D'Amelio, one of the first to arrive on the scene uh, on the incident of October 31st, testified that Sweeney said to him, man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept choking her. I just lost my temper. I blew it again. Well, when Sweeney eventually took the stand, he was abjectly courteous 
He spoke very quietly. Although he wept, he was never flustered. No signs of rage like when Lillian Pierce had taken the stand. He painted his relationship with Dominique as idyllic. He named the names of all her animals. The puppy, the kitten, the bunny. He refuted the testimony of Brian Cook and Denise and denied any attempt to choke her. He said he'd only tried to restrain her from leaving. Still not cool. He admitted that they had separated after that and that she'd had the locks chained so he couldn't get back into the house. But he insisted that she'd promised to reconcile with him and it was that refusal to follow through that brought on the final attack. Let's just sit with that thought, shall we? He claimed he couldn't remember the events of the murder. Um, he claimed to have entered Dominique's house and afterwards and attempted to commit suicide by swallowing two bottles of pills. No bottles were found, by the way. And if he did do that, uh, they didn't seem to affect his system. So near the end of the trial... There was a letter discovered by Dominique's friends when they were closing up her house for the funeral. It was addressed to Sweeney, which he may or may not have received. It was introduced as the prosecutor's rebuttal. And it was almost as if Dominique was speaking from beyond the grave. I'd like to read it now because I feel that it pertains to many situations of domestic abuse and domestic violence and the complicatedness that's really hard to describe when you're not in the relationship. It reads, selfishness works both ways. You are just as selfish as I am. We have to be two individuals to work together as a couple. I am not permitted to do enough things on my own. Why must you be a part of everything I do? Why do you want to come to my writing lessons and my acting classes? Why are you jealous of every scene partner I have? Why must I recount word for word everything I spoke to Dr. Black about? Why must I talk about every audition when you know it is bad luck for me? Why do we have discussions at 3 a.m. all the time instead of during the day? Why must you know the name of every person I come into contact with? You go crazy over my rehearsals. You insist on going to work with me when I've told you it makes me nervous. Your paranoia, it's overboard. You do not love me. You are obsessed with me. The person you think you love, it's not me at all. It's someone you've made up in your head. I'm the person who makes you angry, who you fight with sometimes. I think we only fight when images of me fade away and you're faced with the real me. That's why arguments erupt out of nowhere 
the whole thing has made me realize how scared I am of you. And I don't mean just physically. I'm afraid of the next time you're going to have another mood swing. When we are good, we are great. But when we are bad, we are horrendous. The bad outweighs the good. The rest of the trial is pretty much a travesty. Um, Judge Katz reads instructions to the jury explaining the differences between second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, and involuntary manslaughter. Later, after the sentencing, um, a foreman came forward on TV and said that the judge's instructions were incomprehensible. And then during the eight days that the jury was out, they were completely deadlocked. They asked the judge four times, four times for clarification on the instructions. And four times, the judge told them that the answers to their questions were in the instructions. So Dominic Dunn stayed in Bel Air um, in L.A. while all of this was going on. And um, he talks about a really crazy moment where, you know, they're waiting for the jury's verdict. They're deliberating. Everyone is extremely stressed out. And he's pacing relentlessly, like in this mansion that he's rented in Bel Air. And he hasn't watched TV all summer. And so suddenly he decides that he's going to turn on, turn on this TV. And then he hears a voice there on the television is Dominique and she's screaming, what's happening? The line from the poltergeist it's on the cable channel. And he was just so shocked to see her. It was almost as if she was sending him a message and he couldn't help himself. He just shouts back. I don't know what's happening. My darling. The next day, the verdict comes in. Five minutes before the jury enters, the judge sentences a man who's robbed a flower shop in a nonviolent crime to five years in prison. And then Sweeney comes in, clutching his Bible. The room is packed. The reporters are all there. And then... The foreman delivers two envelopes to the bailiff to give to the judge. He reads them, hands them to the clerk, who then reads the verdict aloud. The strangulation death of Dominique Dunn was voluntary manslaughter and the earlier choking a misdemeanor assault. There was an audible gasp of disbelief. The maximum sentence for the two charges is six and a half years. And with good time, work time, the convict is automatically paroled when he has served half his sentence without having to go through even a parole hearing. In addition to that, since the time spent in jail between the arrests and sentencing counted as time served, John Sweeney would be free in two and a half years. Judge Katz excuses the jury, telling them that even though other people might agree or disagree with the verdict, they must not doubt their decision. You were there. You saw the evidence. You heard the witnesses, quote unquote. Of course, he knew that they would be hearing from the press about Lillian Pierce. I don't understand how this judge could sit here and listen to Lillian and Lenny's testimony and then 
tell the jury that they saw the evidence. They're missing critical evidence, missing critical witnesses. Anyway, he told them that justice had been served, and then he thanked them on behalf of the attorneys and the families. <sighs> I would be livid to hear Judge Katz thank the jury on behalf of my family for reducing the, the vicious murder of my daughter to nothing but voluntary manslaughter. Dominic Dunn is obviously just as outraged and he yells at the judge, not for our family, Judge Katz. They had to escort him out of the room. Dominic takes one last look back and meets Judge Katz's eyes. And he says to him, because they're all exiting the courtroom at this time, he says, you have withheld important evidence from this jury about this man's history of violence against women. And then later, when the jury foreman was asked by the press what finally broke the deadlock, he answered on television, a few jurors were just hot and tired and wanted to give up. Trial was over. Sentencing was set for November 10th. Obviously, there was an uproar in the media over the verdict. Um, letters of outrage filled the newspapers. Stories of John Sweeney's history of violence against women became public knowledge. Articles were titled, Heat of Passion, Legitimate Defense or Illegal Loophole? Judge Katz was severely criticized. And then in the weeks that followed, a local television station released the results of a poll of prosecutors and criminal defense attorneys in which he tied for fourth worst judge in L.A. County. According to Proposition 8, which is the Victim's Bill of Rights, the next of kin of the murder victims have the right to take the stand at the sentencing and plead with the judge for the maximum sentence. On the day of the sentencing, there were a lot of protests going on outside of the courtroom. Um, the courtroom was filled to capacity. Extra bailiffs were in the aisles. Dominic and Lenny get up there. They uh, presented a petition to Judge Katz that had been circulated by Dominique's friends containing thousands of signatures of people protesting the verdict and asking for the maximum sentence. They were not cross-examined by the defense attorney. Throughout the several hours of the proceedings, John Sweeney remained hunched over, his face covered in his hands. His Bible was apparently missing. He mocked the argument that Sweeney had acted in the heat of passion. He goes on to say, I will state on the record that I believe this is a murder. I believe that Sweeney is a murderer and not a manslaughterer. This is a killing with malice. This man held on to this young, vulnerable, beautiful, warm human being that had everything to live for with his hands. He had to have known that as she was flailing to get oxygen, that the process of death was displacing the process of life. And then the judge addressed Sweeney. You knew of your capability for uncontrolled violence. You knew you hurt Dominique badly with your own hands and that you nearly choked her into unconsciousness on September 26. You were in a rage because your fragile ego could not accept the final rejection. For all of the judge's sudden outrage and hysteria, nothing changed. Going forward, obviously the entire family was shattered with this. Griffin Dunn is quoted as saying, I guess there never is any real satisfaction that the legal system can give, but this outcome was such a blow, such a slap in the face to our family and to Dominique's memory. They literally got away with murder. 
The bitterness of that will never leave. Dominique's father, Dominic Dunn, went on to become the writer that we know him as today, as a champion for justice, for the underserved, for the people who were getting stepped on in the face of our justice system. Um, and Judge Katz was ultimately negatively affected by the outcome of this case. He moved to the juvenile court system shortly afterwards. And then after a couple of years in prison, Sweeney was released and then went back to uh, working in the restaurants. The Dunn family made it their business to basically get him kicked out of the culinary scene. He didn't get to just go back to town and become a, a chef. They would host picketing rallies outside of his restaurants. They would paper the neighborhoods that he was staying in with, uh, you know, information and photos of Dominique and the trial. They eventually drove John Sweeney into getting a name change and moving away. Dominique's brother Alex decided to stay in California with their mom to finish schooling. Um, her older brother Griffin went back to New York to do a new film. Lenny, with the time that she had left because of her MS diagnosis, became an active spokesperson for parents of murdered children. And Dominic Dunn returned to finish the novel he had been writing, which he had started at the beginning of the trial. Um, so the last thing I want to say about the family was, uh, is a scene that Dominic describes before he leaves Los Angeles back for New York. He asks his driver on the way to the airport to make an additional stop. Uh, he goes to the Westwood Cemetery where Dominique is buried next to two of her mother's closest friends, the actresses Norma Crane and Natalie Wood. On her marker, under her name and dates, it says, Love by all. Dominic knelt down and put a yellow rose on her grave and then said, Goodbye, my darling daughter. With the current situation that we're all facing, the issue of domestic violence continues to haunt our society to this day. And there has been a huge spike because women and children and men are having to quarantine with their literal abusers. Um, there has been a lot of change in regards to resources for victims and survivors. During the time of this crime, there weren't even shelters available for people to go to. And the founding of American Society Against the Cruelty of Animals actually predates laws against cruelty towards one wife by several decades. The first federal law prohibiting domestic violence wasn't passed until 1984. There are still more than a dozen countries where violence against one's spouse or family member is considered perfectly legal and so much of the existing legal precedent around domestic violence in the U.S. has happened very, very recently. It wasn't until 1984 that Congress finally passed a law that would help women and children who are victims of abuse. 
It's called the Family Violence Prevention and Services Act, and it helped fund shelters and other resources for victims. Stalking wasn't even identified as a crime until the early 1990s. And today it's still not even seen for the threat that it truly is, not by law enforcement, abusers, or even the victims actually being stalked. Despite the fact that three quarters of intimate partner femicide victims in America have been stalked beforehand by partners, ex-partners, a national hotline for victims of domestic violence was not established in this country until 1996, according to The Atlantic. If you find yourself in a situation where you are quarantined with your abuser, please know that this isn't 1982 anymore. There is progress out there. There are resources for you. Um, you can always contact the Advocates of National Devi Domestic Violence Hotline. It's a 24-7 hotline. That number is 1-800-799-SAFE-2733. That's 1-800-799-7233. It's available in over 200 languages. There is also the Battered Women's Support Services. That number is 604 652 you can email them at intake, I-N-T-A-K-E, at B-W-S-S dot O-R-G. You can also call 604-687-1867, 1-855-687-1868. Or if you can't speak on the phone because your abuser is in the same room with you, you can text 604-652-1867. On a more personal note, I just wanted to let everybody know that I myself am a survivor of domestic abuse, both physical and emotional. I know exactly how difficult it can be to get out of that kind of situation. I'm really grateful that the United States has made the progress it has, that there are resources and hotlines and shelters and advocates and social workers and people who take this stuff seriously and who know what it can end up becoming and who are on our side and rooting for us. I have reached out to these phone numbers and resources on behalf of myself and other people I know and love who have been suffering and find themselves in terrible situations. They can give you advice on what to do if you know somebody uh, who is going through something. If you're witnessing abuse, uh, there, there are things you can do and things you can say. And these people will walk you through it. They will hold your hand, answer your questions, um, give you resources, give you hope. Because it's really important to stay strong. I know that there is a stigma of shame and secrecy and silence uh, for loving somebody who hurts you, but there is hope. This is does not have to be your end-all be-all. There are people out there who love you. You're not alone. And I'm really glad that the United States has progressed to a place where if we find ourselves in these situations now, we have resources and help to get through it and come out as survivors on the other side. Thanks so much, everybody. Stay safe out there. Bye.